Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you are listening to episode 411 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab 2 Splashdown. On June 22, 1973, the final day of the Skylab 2 mission, the astronauts were woken at 7 p.m. Houston time to begin a long day. They would be exhausted by the time they hit the water. Joe Kerwin told Capcom Carl Heinz, quote, It's wonderful of you to pretend it's morning just for us. End quote. There were plenty of last-minute questions and checks that they had the right procedures, messages, and times. Of course, there was another review on exactly how to mate the docking probe and drogue. You may remember that on day one, the mission was nearly over before it began when the probe and drogue didn't want to mate. Conrad focused on checking and activating the command and service module while Kerwin set up the Apollo telescope mount to run in its unmanned mode for the next five weeks before the second crew arrived. Whites helped both astronauts as needed. Of course, there had to be a final problem. This time, the problem was Skylab's refrigeration system began warming up. Houston immediately went to work on the problem while the crew finished stowage and donned suits. There was some concern that their return would be delayed or possibly even canceled. But about four hours later, Mission Control decided The system's radiator, positioned at the end of the workshop where the engine nozzle would normally have been, had frozen up. Therefore, Houston maneuvered Skylab so the radiator would point at the sun. Meanwhile, the crew closed the tunnel hatch and waited in their couches on the command module for a go to undock. Then at 3.30 a.m., a delay was called. But just 24 minutes later, permission was given to undock. The radiator was now unblocked and the loop was cooling down. At 3.58 a.m., the command and service module slipped its bonds and drifted away from Skylab. Pete Conrad was ordered to fly around the station for a visual and photographic inspection before initiating a separation burn to prepare for the re-entry sequence. Skylab looked small and friendly as they backed away with its one-sided solar panel and ruffled parasol against a scattered cloud and ocean background. At 5.05 a.m., the service propulsion system's shaping burn was initiated for 10 seconds, which slowed the spacecraft by 264 feet per second as the crew flew over the Philippine Sea. 
This was followed by the last star sightings through the command module's telescope. Then Joe Kerwin got drinks for everyone before strapping in for the final burn, but decided to save his until after splashdown. At 7.30 a.m., Houston gave Skylab the weather in the recovery area and also informed the crew that there were two recovery helicopters and they would use the call sign recovery and swim. After the final deorbit burn, Joe and Paul were surprised when they realized that they had grayed out a little during the burn. As pilots know, burns like these can cause a drain of blood from the brain and produce a reduction called a gray out or a complete loss called a blackout of vision. In some extreme cases, it could also cause a loss of consciousness. But the service module engine only produced about 1G worth of thrust, which was considered trivial. But nobody had experienced 1G of thrust after being weightless for a month. Now, total re-entry G-forces would build up to about 4 and one half Gs, but very gradually. Therefore, no problem was anticipated. Nevertheless, the crew did rehearse which switches had to be thrown to assure successful splashdown and who had to throw them. At 8.15 a.m., the command module separated from the service module, pitched around so the heat shield faced the direction of flight and began descent into the upper layers of the atmosphere. Although this first Skylab mission did not exactly follow the original flight plan, today's splashdown sequence has really not changed much from the original plan. The three astronauts in their command module separated from the orbiting laboratory at 5.40 a.m. this morning, Eastern Time. A few seconds before 9.34, or about four hours after separation, they will knife through the atmosphere 75 miles above the Earth. The target point for splashdown is in the Pacific Ocean at the center of a landing area about 600 miles long and about 150 miles wide. The astronauts are aiming for a landing at 9.50 Eastern Time in the ocean at a point 830 miles southwest of San Diego, California. That's where the aircraft carrier Ticonderoga is on station waiting to take the crew aboard. And that will be that old carrier's final mission, uh, picking up these Skylab astronauts. Roy Neal and Jim Hartz, how's it going in Houston? John, we've been joined by a guest, Rusty Swickert, who is the backup command pilot for the uh, Skylab mission. And without taking anything away from the astronauts who've been working in space, this man has been working on Earth about as hard, I think. I don't think they did anything up there that you hadn't tested first down here in the tank at Huntsville and various things like that. It's been quite a month for you, hasn't it? It has indeed. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun, but a lot of work. Yeah. I, Rusty, I think, before the fight was uh, was ready to sit back and relax after several years of training, I guess, but uh, it just didn't turn out that way. He'll be with us for the rest of the morning. We, uh, I understand, have a picture from the aircraft carrier Ticonderoga. We're going to switch out there in a, in a few minutes and have a report. There you can see it. It's on station and everything is uh, is going according to schedule we believe jim it's interesting to note by the way as we look at the ticonderoga this morning that they've got a, about 1800 feet of overcast weather which doesn't promise too well for our television view of the parachutes as they land there is a slight breeze about 12 knots the waves are about four feet high and the temperature 67 degrees they're going to arrive back in the same kind of weather that they left in and launched from cape kennedy in uh, an overcast on an overcast day, and they're coming back with one. So with a little different <clears throat> feeling in the bet, a little bit different feeling. Yeah. How do you think they feel now after 28 days up there, record-breaking space flight? I think they're going to be uh, they're going to be floating down here for about the next month or two. I think <laughs> there was a lot of concern, Rusty, uh, before we uh, before the flight of what kind of condition they would be in when they got back. Mm -hmm. There were three Soviet astronauts who spent. Uh, 
18 days in space right. and had to be taken out, carried out of the spacecraft. What's the general thinking this morning on, on whether they'll have to be carried out or whether they'll walk? Well, we, if, I'll tell you what we expect and what we prepare for. What we expect to happen is that we'll see them get out of the spacecraft on the carrier and walk over into the medical area for their uh, post-flight medical tests. And that's the way we anticipate doing it. It's the way we plan doing it. Uh, however, we do have an, al an alternate uh, an option set up, which would be used in case in Joe Kerwin, uh, who's of course the doctor on board, and in his estimation, uh, that will be too difficult, it would be too strenuous, or it would in any way degrade the medical data, then the option is there for the uh, three astronauts to be put on a stretcher-like device and, uh, and carried into the uh, medical area for their post-flight tests. But I expect that that will not be used. Roy? Uh, Jim, I'd just like to make this note. We expect communication from the astronauts now in about seven minutes. Uh, they've had a good communications check with the range-instrumented aircraft, and apparently we can expect some kind of word on how well the astronauts are, making out how well they have succeeded in coming back through the atmosphere in that time. Program scheduled to bring you a special Skylab report. ABC News presents... Skylab, a workshop in space. Good morning. The longest space flight in history is drawing to a close. We are only 20 minutes or so away now from the splashdown of the first Skylab astronauts. They've been up there for 28 days studying the sun, the earth, and most important themselves to determine the effect on man. The big question has been whether man can endure in space for long periods of time and the effect it has on him. So far, this crew appears to be in much better shape than anticipated. The uh, recovery carrier, Ticonderoga, is on station in the Pacific recovery area, some 830 miles from San Diego. The weather downrange is uh, said to be quite acceptable. Well, Jules, all appears ready for uh, another splashdown. Right, Frank, and so far, man has prevailed. About 15 minutes ago, Conrad, Kerwin, and White separated their command module from their service module with a dual burn maneuver, if you will. The service module's reaction control system thrusters pulling away from the command module and maneuver much like this. Then the three astronauts in the command module, as on many past Apollo flights, did a slight burn of their uh, reaction control system thrusters on the command module, pulled away, the reaction control system thrusters on the service module did another burn to get it away from the command module, and they began the dynamic act of re-entry. Not as harrowing and perilous a re-entry as we've seen on many past lunar flights, a somewhat slower re-entry, but they're headed back in. Shortly the blackout will begin, and the critical parts of the re-entry before they splash down. In past space missions, the astronauts were hoisted aboard helicopters using little bird cages, such as we see here, then flown back to the recovery carrier itself. Well, we should be seeing those little bird cages in a second. This time, instead of using the bird cages in the conventional Hilo-1, Recovery-1 rescue techniques, the astronauts will stay inside the spacecraft until it's lifted, I mean, lifted aboard the carrier. A crane on the hangar deck will be used to hoist the spacecraft aboard. They've tried this a number of times in practice sessions, and everybody's confident the carrier, a 42,000-ton carrier, can be maneuvered into position with no danger of banging into the spacecraft. It's also faster, this type of recovery technique, taking as little as 30 minutes in past practice sessions, although they'll be much more cautious today. Once safely on the hangar deck of the Tycho, the Ticonderoga, the command module will be placed on a dolly. Dr. Joe Kerwin himself, in still inside the command module, will then do a quick blood pressure and heart rate check on himself, Conrad, and Whites. If they're okay, they'll crack the hatch and then walk about 50 feet to the mobile medical labs uh, contained in vans on the hangar deck to begin the elaborate medical tests. These labs, of course, are far more intensive, elaborate than anything that's been used before during any past Apollo recovery. Jules, uh, Mission Control announced just a short while ago that the last simulation, just a couple of days ago on board the uh, Ticonderoga, they uh, were able to get the spacecraft up on the deck uh, between 30 and 35 minutes. But it probably will take a bit longer today, won't it? I think Captain uh, Green of the Tycho said, we'll never do this well when we're doing the real thing. We're all going to be too concerned about running down that little spacecraft with a 42,000-ton carrier. Yeah, some seamanship is involved here. ABC News will bring you more on the first Skylab mission after this message.
That looks to me on the watch like just about 16, 17 minutes away. We're getting very close, gentlemen. About four minutes from contact. Rusty, how do you feel right now about this group? Oh, I wish I'd been there. They've obviously been having a ball, really. I mean, it's, it's been such an enjoyable flight, aside from the fact that uh, they were able to, in a sense, rescue what was looking to be a, a very sad situation. Uh, they not only did it with flair, but they also had a heck of a lot of fun afterward, and then carrying out the mission and getting all the scientific information that, that we're so eagerly anticipating here. How about this landing without communication, though? Well, of course, I, that doesn't bother you on board. In fact, it's a very nice thing because you, you've got a job to do and you've trained to do it. And, and really, uh, being in contact with the ground, once they've given you the essential information, is more of a bother than it is uh, a help. You, you really uh, are happy to, to be left alone to get the job done. <laughs> there's nothing they can do, is there? No, there's nothing the ground can do now except to sit back and, and uh, anticipate a, a landing right in the landing zone and light up the cigars and, uh, and everybody feel very good. There's never been a problem with landing on any man, American manned space flights that I can recall. Well, we had any... one come down with two chutes. That, that's three, right. That's, but that's, right. that's about the... Never, never any problem, problem where, where a man was, uh, was in danger. The, uh, the, the computer on board the spacecraft and the guidance system is apparently so finely tuned that most of the landings have been, uh, recent ones anyway, have been certainly within eye shot of the aircraft carrier and usually the landing has been within like a mile or so. Here's an interesting point, too. We've been saying, essentially, that these landings, that is, this particular recovery, moving the spacecraft with the men that aboard the carrier, is new. I was just noting here that back on Gemini 9 and on Gemini 6, and 9 was Tom Stafford and Gene Cernan, 6 was Stafford and Sherat, they came up on board that carrier, uh, were put on board. I think we're about ready to go back downrange. Feet, so unless the spacecraft and its chutes comes down through one of the holes in the clouds, we won't see it until right before splashdown. There are it. some holes. Yeah, you can. can you can see it. So maybe we will get a, a view of it before. <clears throat> well, they should be nearing the end of their blackouts, and we expect communication here in oh, about a minute and a half as they come into the range of that aircraft that's standing by to relay communications back to us here at the Johnson Space Center. Roy, I think we're seeing now a view from on top of the clouds, if I'm not mistaken. That's probably the photo helo, the and photo helicopter. We, we may get some very good photos of the uh, spacecraft coming down from on top. Good point. Nobody blacked out. All switches were moved into the correct position. And at 8.45 a.m. Houston time, Skylab contacted recovery at 4,500 feet with three good main parachutes. We are told that we should hear from them in about three minutes. I don't know whether we'll ever hear from our reporter out there. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. End of blackout is at 40 minutes and 12 seconds after the hour. And Mission Control has just reported that we can expect communication within seconds after that. Of course, you're seeing a very happy crew in that ship also, uh, about to decommission the ship, and here they are uh, about to pick up uh, the passengers from the first space station that we've ever had, and I, I think they're about as excited as people here. Oh, I mentioned they are. There's that view from on top of the clouds, the photo helicopter. From up there, it looks as if we have a fighting good chance. It's like one big hole in the clouds, too. I wonder if we right go right down through it. <laughs> How much control do you have as an astronaut when you get down to those final strokes? You're on the chutes. You can't control that. Well, you you have a considerable amount of control when you first start into the atmosphere. Such as the simulation showing right now. Right. Uh, at this point, where you're first beginning to get the ionization back around the spacecraft, and that's a very pretty thing, by the way, uh, you can roll the spacecraft and affect your landing point by a considerable amount. The footprint is some 600 miles long, and I can land at the far end of it or the near end of it or either side. 
And uh, in this particular entry we're making right now, the, the splash point is actually north of the ground track. That is, they'll be turning a little bit to the north during the entry to land at the splash point. This is controlled by the, by the spacecraft itself. Yes, sir. And uh, we can control it in several different ways. The computer normally controls it automatically, but we monitor the computer to see that it's doing its job and uh, are ready to take over in case uh, it, there is some problem with the computer. When you get down on top of those clouds and you're on the chutes, it's just lucky if you get that hole, isn't it? Well, it depends on your definition of luck, Roy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> depends on who's on your team and who's not. You know, right. <laughs> But in, in truth, you certainly don't have any control once you're in the parachutes. Uh, you're coming down, and, and uh, that's a, of course, that's a great time because the parachutes were, in a sense, the last of the major events to work right. And, and there you are looking up at those parachutes, and you realize that all the pyrotechnics that have had to work have all worked, and right now you're, you're headed and the ocean is going to stop you, and that's pretty reliable. You astronauts have a pretty keen competition to see who can come closest to the carrier. Now, that's, that is a matter, I guess. The biggest, the biggest problem there, Roy, is that, uh, and we've had lots of, uh, lots of jovial uh, discussions about it, is that the carrier is never in the right place. <laughs> and, and I say that not because they're not directly under you when you land, but uh, they actually have to maneuver a little bit on the carrier, and as a result, they really are not on the splash point. So the distance from the carrier is really not the criterion of, of the best landing. That's right. As a matter of fact, the Ticonderoga, Ticonderoga right now should be downwind by a number of miles, ready to time at a true speed their arrival at that spacecraft to pick up some 33 minutes was the last rehearsal they ran with 33 minutes splash down to pick up let's hope they can make it that fast today uh, i have a watch and i think i'll this time of this response hey they have radar contact right now let's let's listen to it here we may be hearing the astronauts once they have radar contact we usually have a good chance of voice communication shortly after getting closer. <laughs> <laughs> One of the reasons why they want to, want to pick them up uh, on the uh, carrier, in addition to being able to handle the men a little bit better in that situation, is that there are several experiments on, that they're bringing back on board the spacecraft, which they want to recover very quickly. Some urine samples and some blood samples are frozen, uh, kept in a, a uh, sealed container on board the spacecraft, and they want to recover those before they thaw out, or else some of their medical experiments will not be valid. Plus the fact that some of the film needs to be kept at a, uh, at a rather cool temperature. So that's, that's a second reason why they want to get the spacecraft on board the carrier as quickly as possible. And uh, uh, it shouldn't be more than an hour, but as Roy said, the last, uh, the last practice run ran 33 minutes. So that's roughly what we can look forward to. The range now on radar is much less than 78 miles. And they are expecting voice communication momentarily. Well, the trend is certainly right, Roy. <laughs> it's moving in the right direction. Right. <laughs> we can hear the communication circuit there. Just nothing coming across it right now. Right. Of course, the last thing we heard Pete say was to let the carrier know that they, in good old Navy tradition, that they had their hook down and were ready to come aboard. Now the cameras are starting to scan the skies there in the Pacific. Looking for that hole. Skylab Houston through the rye. How do you read? Of course, that's Dick Truly, the Capcom, uh, making a call to let them know that they're potentially, at least, in communication. Sitting in a chair and missing Skylab control. Houston Two through a rye. How do you read? especially on this flight. Looks like a bit of activity on the deck there now. There are helicopters um, in the area, and if, if uh, the plan is still the same, some of the para 
divers would go, would, would go down to the spacecraft to make sure everything was all right. They do have the capability to take them out of the spacecraft. Right through around. around one. How do you read? computer says they'll be splashing at. And right about now they'll be out of 30,000 feet and the grave chutes will be coming out at 25. That's the simulation of, of the droves coming out. Two chutes on the droves, three on the mains. Right, they're relatively okay, small chutes okay, and they're stabilized. The reading right on for landing. And of course we just got the report that the onboard computer agrees very well with the splash point. So that's Good news. Pete said they're all in good shape. That's good to hear. Right. There's been some conjecture that they might black out after 28 weightless days. I think that's been dispelled comfortably by now. Oh, yeah. Of course, you're laying on your back here when you're coming in, so the stress of the reentry is not in such a way as it's taken by fighter pilots or people flying airplanes where it's vertical. The crew during the entry experiences what we call eyeballs in G's rather than eyeballs down. And as a result, it does not rain the blood away from your head. Terry White reports how they should be on main shoots. Through that overcast, we're not seeing very much at the moment. Except the simulation. That's right. We're seeing some live pictures, of course, from the carrier. As soon as that carrier sees something, I'm sure that will go to that picture. Here's one of the live pictures now. Oh, the Skylab 2 command module splashed down at 8.50 a.m. on June 23, 1973, ending an historic flight of 28 days 49 minutes, 48 seconds, and 404 orbits. Initial reports indicated that the spacecraft landed just six and a half miles from the prime recovery vessel, the USS Ticonderoga. And they must have all three. He would have reported otherwise. I'm sure he would. <laughs> Knowing Pete probably with a laugh or a chuckle. They remained, uh, maintained a remarkably good sense of humor all through this mission and uh, have quite obviously had a really enjoyable time. Pete has been that way, I guess, since he was a little kid. <laughs> he right. always has that, uh, that great bubbling sense of humor. I don't think anybody will ever forget Pete Conrad and Al Bean on the moon, laughing and singing and humming. And now they're talking to the recovery people in the helicopter, so... Well, of course, that's Pete's competitive nature, too. He's, 
he's obviously in this light uh, determined to, to show that that he's going to come back in as good a shape as he left in, and that will be really interesting to see how the medical data turns out on him because he has exercised a great deal up there, and that's of course one of the basic differences between uh, what we have on the Skylab. There's the, uh, and I don't see them, but I hear people saying that they are right there. Some of the pictures are dimly seen. Oh, great! But we have had a capability. The recovery force moving in on the splashdown point, and right now the command module descending on those huge 84-foot orange and white parachutes coming through the cloud layer, which is from about 2,000 to 3,000 feet over the splashdown point. Any moment now, the site that the people in this recovery force have been waiting for for hours. The scene of those parachutes dropping through the clouds to an apparent perfect splashdown in the Pacific Ocean. There they are. Today's splashdown obscured somewhat by the clouds, but there you can see all three of the command module main parachutes deployed. Headed toward a splashdown just about uh, six miles off the bow of the USS Ticonderoga, the primary recovery ship. Descending now toward the Pacific at about 26 miles an hour. We have splash, splashdown of the Skylab 2 command module. Perfect ending to Skylab 2, apparently, on its way now as the USS Ticonderoga, only six miles from the splashdown point in the Pacific. And there's the command module landing in what NASA calls a stable one upright position. Skylab 2 command module bobbing on Four to five foot swells, about 834 miles southwest of San Diego. And the recovery effort begins. There's the primary recovery helicopter, piloted by Commander Arnie Fieser. And into the water, Lieutenant Tim Keeney, leader of the recovery swim team. Lieutenant Kinney being dropped downwind of the command, uh, command module, checking the module out to see if there are leaks of the propellants and the thruster engines on the command modules, the engines with uh, which the crew was able to control the attitude of their spacecraft on re-entry. And there is the Earth Landing Systems Recovery Team, led by Lieutenant J.G. John Graham, into the water, jumping onto the three huge main parachutes that brought the command module safely down in the... For the astronauts, the impact of splashdown was not that bad. Pete hit the shoot release button promptly, and the spacecraft bobbed to the stable position one, which is upright. 39 minutes later, the carrier pulled up beside the spacecraft. Joe took his and his crewmates' pulses while lying on the couches. It was 84 for Pete and Joe and 76 for Paul. Then they halfway stood up in the lower equipment bay and their pulses increased to about 96 for everyone. They were fine, but the heart rates indicated they were fighting 1G. Pete and Paul returned to their couches while Joe grabbed the strawberry drink he had prepared before re-entry and chug-a-lugged it. His stomach immediately felt sick and he would eventually vomit aboard ship. Hoisting up the command module with the astronauts still inside and depositing it carefully on the elevator at the hangar deck level was routine. For six 
anxious minutes those outside waited while yellow overall technicians prepared the module for opening. There was a moment's confusion because Pete had already unlocked the hatch from inside. Conrad was determined that his crew was going to leave the command module without assistance, and he reminded his crew of that. He knew the TV cameras would be on them. Pete was right at the hatch when it opened. He was on his haunches, ready to jump out. With a hand on each arm, he was eased to the platform and immediately given a blue Ticonderoga baseball cap to replace the white fireproof model he was wearing. Pete told the recovery team that they needed to get Joe out of there because he was feeling sick. But White's came next and then Kerwin. Each tested his legs gingerly and waved to the cheering Navy crew. Then one by one, with one hand on the railing, they descended the platform step, each accompanied by a NASA physician. Of the three, Conrad, veteran of three previous flights and the new world space record holder at 1,179 hours, 39 minutes, the first man to break the 1,000-hour level, readjusted quite well. Better than White's, and far better than Kerwin, who was markedly affected by his readaptation to 1G. Although by day five, even he was quickly returning to pre-flight performance levels on the lower body negative pressure and the ergometer. Despite the difficulty encountered early on in the mission, the success of Conrad and his crew provided much confidence in the success of the second and third missions. After living in space for 28 days, longer than any other men, the Skylab astronauts returned to Earth safely this morning, splashing down in the Pacific Ocean right on target. The astronauts were a couple of minutes late leaving their space laboratory because a freezer in the Skylab kitchen broke down and they stayed around trying to fix it. Once on their way, everything went fine. Here's a report from Roy Neal in Houston. The astronauts, in their command module, undocked and pulled away from the Skylab that had been their home in space for 28 days. Bye-bye, Skylab. About five hours after they took off for Earth, Conrad Kerwin and Weitz rendezvoused with the carrier Ticonderoga at sea, about 800 miles from San Diego. It was a warm, mostly gray dawn as the men on the carrier looked for and finally sighted the three parachutes and the spacecraft coming down through the overcast. During most of the complicated re-entry, the men were out of contact. Just after splashdown, Commander Pete Conrad made these comments. Stable one, right side up, a perfect landing. Conrad also said that the men were, quote, in super shape as the carrier prepared to pick up the spacecraft. Differing from Apollo recoveries, the astronauts stayed inside during the pickup. After 28 days, weightless in space, longer by far than any men before them, there was some question of how well these men would be able to walk. So Dr. Joseph Kerwin, inside the spacecraft, checked himself and his teammates very carefully before they came out. He and Paul Weitz reported some dizziness, but nothing serious. Finally, Conrad came out of the cabin, apparently in great shape. Reporter Bill Walker was on the carrier. astronauts are Navy men used to getting their sea legs, but having a little trouble in this case, getting their Earth legs. And Dr. Kerwin, who needed a little assistance. 
The three men then went into the Skylab mobile laboratory for an extensive six-hour examination. NASA officials say they accomplished every major objective of their mission. They salvaged the Skylab space station. They brought back more than 30,000 pictures of the sun and the earth. And most importantly, they extended the boundaries of man's staying power in space. Conrad, Kerwin, and Weitz will stay on the carrier until Sunday morning. Then they'll be helicoptered to the Western White House at San Clemente. They will meet there with President Nixon and Soviet party leader Leonid Brezhnev, after which the astronauts will fly home to Houston. That meeting, diverting a team of astronauts on the way home from a space mission, is unprecedented. But then, so was Skylab. Roy Neal, NBC News, Houston. The Skylab astronauts, Conrad, Kerwin, and Weitz, have today held their first news conference since returning to Earth a week ago. They spent 28 days in space. They talked today about the effect of such a long, weightless trip and how they've readjusted. And they showed some spectacular film. Roy Neal has the story from the Space Center in Houston. This film, shot by the astronauts, shows the Skylab in space. They said they had left the space station in good condition for the next crew to live in for 56 days. Conrad, Kerwin, and Weitz were in space, weightless, for 28 days. Today, they discussed the problems of readjusting to gravity. A week after splashdown, their bodies are almost back to normal. They recommended more exercise for the men who will follow them. They recovered sufficiently in two days to handle normal activity, but their first few hours back on Earth were uncomfortable. At today's conference, Joseph Kerwin, the doctor, described his symptoms after what he called chug-a-lugging a strawberry drink after splashdown. The farthest thought from my mind was, was uh, getting seasick. But that's what happened. And I just got progressive. I, I noted the same ver vertigo and the same heaviness of the limbs that, that the other guys had. But superimposed on that was this awful feeling that the world is about to swallow you up, you know. What I mean, it's no worse than a, than a hangover or anything else, but, but there it is, and you've got to struggle through it. And it stayed with me uh, through the entire day. I'm not sure, but I've, heard, I've read about hangovers in the medical literature. Uh, uh, naturally, you feel better after you, thro after you throw up, and I managed to accomplish that, uh, that feat about three hours later. And it was uphill from then, or downhill, rather. <laughs> Whatever it is in 1G. <laughs> Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 411 of the Space Rocket History podcast entitled Skylab 2 Splashdown. Our next episode should be released on or about April 20th. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email in the text box. I wanted to remind everyone that we have added two new methods of contributing to the podcast for your convenience. That is Zelle and Venmo. You can use these to send money to my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Webmaster Justin also put the QR codes for my Zelle and Venmo on the homepage for your convenience. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 231 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. And by the way, I just uh, got the uh, Space Rocket History Archive on Spotify as well. So it's there, but you have to really look to find it. You have to type out the whole Space Rocket History Archive. I don't, they don't do things alphabetically just on that index there. They do it by, I guess, listeners and things like that, but you got to type out the whole thing if you want to find it, and then you got to scoot over a few and look for it, and it's not easy to find, but you just type out the whole thing and you'll find it. That's for Spotify, and that's new because I just got it on Spotify. 
If you would like, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Space Rocket Hist. And you can follow me on Facebook by searching for Space Rocket History. And you can also keep up with me on Patreon.com slash Space Rocket History, where in addition to episodes, I sometimes post other things. I'm uh, thinking about posting a recipe that a uh, listener sent in recently uh, for the uh, Skylab cookies that Pete Conrad liked so much. I may do that pretty soon, but I haven't tried them myself, so I didn't want to put it up there before I actually tried them myself. Mrs. SRH has been pretty busy and hadn't had a chance to make me cookies, and I don't cook so well myself. Afterthoughts. As always, I apologize for my mispronunciations. Well, that's pretty typical for me. You get everything shut down, packed up, ready to go, and then something breaks. In this case, for Skylab, it was the cooler that broke. How many times has that happened when you're going away from home for a while and just something important fails just as you're about to walk out the door? Fortunately, these NASA guys are pretty smart, so they just pointed the aft of the station to melt the frozen clog. The crew was probably thinking that they were never going to get off that station. Then they have to stop and practice with the probe and drogue as well. Now I know Pete knows how that thing works because he's been to the moon. And I know that everybody else has practiced with it, so... I don't know why they had to do that again, but because they had problems of it is why they did it. Anyway, this time they were lucky and it released correctly. Now, imagine this with me. After you leave Skylab, you're backing away from the Skylab and you, you get that view of the Skylab against the Earth and the sky and you uh, see from the outside the uh, one-sided single solar wing, and you, you see the uh, uh, tarp that you put over for sun protection, and you get to really see and get a good look at it from the outside and look at the at Skylab. That must have been quite a great sight to see that. And uh, I will include a picture of that in the... Uh, when I post it on the website there. So it'll be with the episode, so you can check that out on the homepage. Now, I must confess that I was surprised when everyone but Pete had a gray out for a 1G burn. After all, a month isn't that long in space nowadays. I was under the impression that most astronauts nowadays in the ISS stayed at least six months. So I got to thinking, I wonder if they have gray outs as well or blackout problems like that. I know when they come out, they're usually on a stretcher or, or something. But uh, I wonder if they do that. And and I just haven't researched that far because this is space rocket history and we're not to that point in history. So I, I don't know the answer to that question. I'm sure many of you out there do, though. Well... You might think a person (laughs) that is a doctor would be smart enough not to chug a strawberry drink right after splashing down. (laughs) That one kind of surprised me. I guess Dr. Kerwin uh, got a little overzealous or was really thirsty, and he just wasn't thinking because that that strawberry drink really messed him up. There was a little bit of drama that I did not mention in the uh, episode. You remember the astronauts were invited to the summit with Nixon and Brezhnev. So, and that was at San Clemente. I believe that's what it's called, San Clemente. Out of, after they uh, got there to meet Nixon and Brezhnev, uh, they all were wearing... The astronauts were all wearing a mask, and uh, they noticed, particularly Pete noticed, that uh, 
Nixon and Brezhnev weren't wearing any masks. <laughs> I'm not sure why they were they were even requiring the astronauts and the medical team to wear masks, but I guess there were some concern about a virus from space after 28 days or something. But anyway, Pete, deci- <laughs> Pete decides, I'm not wearing that mask in front of them. <laughs> they aren't wearing a mask. I'm taking mine off. So he takes his off, shoves it in his pocket, and his crew follows suit, of course. Now, the medical personnel left their zone because they were in charge of things. Dr. Ross was in charge of things, and uh, he didn't want any trouble, so he was kind of he's kind of afraid to take his mask off. Well, that uh, apparently was a big-time protocol breach for NASA. But I don't think Nixon or Brezhnev even noticed. But uh, when Dr. Ross got back, <laughs> got back to his to the ship, they flew him back to the ship, the Ticonderoga. He got in a a big big trouble with his boss there. He was getting yelled at and screamed at and for irresponsibly removing masks and all this stuff like that, until Pete Conrad took full responsibility for that. And then (laughs) everything, (laughs) like magic, was okay. (laughs) I guess if Pete does it, it's okay. (laughs) So, uh, all right, Pete, good job. (laughs) Good job there, Pete. Okay, finally, in house news, it was a bit disappointing. (laughs) We had a rather boisterous, man who loved to tell stories about his personal life and to stand too close and to touch me a lot, come over to uh, to see what was wrong with our house. You know, this is the meeting that we've been waiting for for a year, you know. Uh, so he, spent, <laughs> he probably spent half the time telling stories about his life instead of talking about the problems we faced with the house and trying to impress us with that, but I personally was not impressed. <laughs> anyway, the main thing I wanted, which you know what it is, I wanted those long 15 to 20 long floor cracks in the basement fixed. You know, however they were going to do it, I wanted them fixed. Well, it turns out he couldn't do that. According to his rules, the cracks have to be one quarter inch thick and they have to also be a three eighths inch displacement. In other words, one side has to be three eighths inch above the other side for them to consider doing something about it, fixing it. Now, I had some cracks that were close, but not quite enough to meet that criteria. So, I did not take it that well, and I let him know with using precise and clear language that I was not too happy about that decision, and I told him what I thought about that workmanship, and he said, uh, yeah, you're right, it is poor workmanship, okay, (laughs) but he's not going to fix it. That's it. So those cracks are there until they become worse because we have what's known as a 210 warranty, and they claim they will fix them if if they're within the 10-year warranty period. I don't know if they'll do that, guys. I really don't. But that's what they claim. They're hoping they'll last 10 years so they don't have to do anything, but at the rate they're moving, I don't think they're going to make it that long. To make things worse, you know, I was thinking about, you know, putting a, a like a wood floor down there, some type of flooring over it. But I can't do that until the cracks get big enough so they'll fix it. So it kind of sets me back a bit. To make matters worse, uh, the minor repairs that were mostly superficial things like uh, sheetrock problems and separations and cracks and things like that uh, 
they are they're going to take months before they can even get a crew out here to fix it. And that they warned me to be prepared because the crew that get out there are going to make a big mess of the house. So just be prepared. It's going to be dusty and messy, and apparently they're not going to clean up. So, in conclusion, if you're building a new home, I would avoid a company called America's Home Place. I would never do anything with them again. So that's just my recommendation. Your mileage may vary. Okay, that's all I have for my personal life. Over the past fortnight, we received about six donations and pledges. I would like to thank Stephen S. from Germany, who donated at the Orion level and earned a space communications dish emoji. Peter H. from France donated at the Apollo level and earned a Nova emoji. Virgil S. donated at the Mercury level. Uh, Virgil used Zelle to send me some money. And I could not get his email address off of that. If you would like to, Virgil to send me your email des- address, I will uh, send you a personal thank you. And you can send my email address is spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Colin S. from Texas donated at the Mercury level and earned a Nova emoji. James M. from Illinois donated at the Mercury level and earned a Nova emoji. Bob R. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. And, oh, we have seven donors. Nanya pledges. Nanya, I'm sorry, that's pronounced Nanya pledged on Patreon at the Starship level. Thank you very much. Our total Patreon donors have descended to 239. That's about a loss of seven since last time. And it's probably mostly because of expired credit cards. At least I hope that's the problem and we can get that taken care of. Our total donors, which includes Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and checks for 2023, have reached 291 with an overall goal of reaching 454 this year. So if you're enjoying this podcast, it's been running now for nearly over, sorry, over 10 years without commercial interruption and you can afford it please consider going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the patreon link or you can donate by check or use the qr codes to donate on venmo or zelle using my email address spacerockethistory at gmail.com and by the way if you began the emoji maneuver last year now is an excellent time to complete it we have several supporters who have earned the shooting star emoji for five years of support, which five years is significant, and we appreciate it. So I want to give them a big shout-out. Uh, Dallas, Darth, Brent M., Daniel M., Lyndon, Gary A., Ian, Brad, Stephen, Florian, Loray, Patrick M., Jake M., Robert M., Edward N., Andy Poole, Andrew S., Daniel S., David S., Nicholas, Darren S., Ali Starr, X15A2, Amy, James B., Ray F., John M., Ian M., Richard O., Tim P., Devin, David, Chris L., M., Alex B., Jeanette and Mark W., Steve M., Tack Neal, and Greg Z., Thank you very much. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's Stoner Giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. The winner for this episode will get the choice of the beautiful SRH archive magnet, or the regular magnet, or two stickers, or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Brent Mallinckrodt. Brent Mallinckrodt, if you will email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Tell us your address and your SRH prize preference. We'll get this out to you. Please accept my apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all 291 who have contributed thus far in 2023. 
My sources for this episode were NASA, ABC News, NBC News, Skylab, our first space station by Leland Bailu, Skylab, America's Space Station by David Shaler, NASA Skylab Owner's Workshop Manual by David Baker, Homestead in Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, Outpost on the Frontier by Jay Chalady, The Internet Archive, and Flickr. And that's all I have for this episode. I will try to have episode 412 posted on or before April 20th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.